0: If you brought your Bibles, would you open with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 4? Revelation, chapter 4. I would say there's a high degree of probability that before the week's out, I will trip over some of these pieces of equipment up here. But it'll be for your entertainment now, won't it? That's all right. Uh, We come to some portions of of um, Scripture that, uh, quite honestly, are as high as literature in Scripture gets. Um, Kind of uh, verses that uh, just are extraordinary to read. So Revelation chapter 4, let's give our attention especially to the reading of God's Word tonight. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him, who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is God's word for us tonight. It's been a few years now since my eldest child, my daughter, asked me this question. She said, Daddy, I just want to know, is the tooth fairy our parents? And of course, I hesitated for a moment, realizing we were leaving a certain era of parenting. And a sort of sheepish license, she asked me, so directly said, yes. And then what followed was was what upset me the most, (laughs) She looked at me and she said, So then she's not real then? Look, y'all, I have grown to hate that question. Why is it that my daughter has to choose between her imagination on the one hand and what is real on the other? Look, for the last 200 years or so, this is the premise I'm going to set in front of you, our world has lived with a particular set of eyes that takes in what it sees around it and attempts to account for it and sum it up in purely scientific terms. This is the great modernist experiment. But if there's anything that the last 100 years have told us, it's that science has failed to account for the most meaningful questions in life. And it doesn't matter how many Sam Harris TED Talks you fill my inbox with science has failed to account for the deepest questions of human existence. And we're experiencing a lot of the rumblings of that. And by the way, if you think that therefore Christianity is anti-science, then you're not paying attention. But I would say one of the greatest uh, sort of losses from that way of viewing the world is a loss of wonder. That in many ways there's been a loss of a sense of looking at things and being moved anymore by them because of our desire to not see them well. One of my favorite scenes from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is when the children go to the host of the house in which they're living that summer, the professor, and ask him about little Lucy's tall tales she's been telling about going through the wardrobe into another world. But as they continue talking with this professor, at a certain point they start to realize that he's not working off the same sort of grid that we are. So much so that at one point, the oldest, Peter, at one point looks at him and says, okay, but do you really mean, sir, to suggest that there could be other worlds all over the place, uh, just around the corner like that? The professor says, nothing could be more probable. I wonder what they do teach them at these schools. (laughs) That's C.S. Lewis's indictment on the way in which our world has grown up losing their ability to stand amazed. Look, y'all, I tried to suggest to you last night that when John goes in the Spirit, when he is in the Spirit, he is opened up to an entire new world. But it's not an imaginary world in the sense that it's not real. Granted, it's accessed through the imagination, but the truth is John pictures it as being really reality itself. And the image that we get in chapter 4 is that of a door, that he looks up and he sees a door, and on the other side of it, John is invited up to experience and take a walk down Main Street of reality itself. The door leads to the real world that is just beyond our senses and comes to us with a description of wonderful Old Testament images. Look, tonight I want to look at this chapter under three headings. I want to, first of all, see what John sees. Secondly, I want to see what John means, at least take a stab at it. And then thirdly, I want to see how it applies, what John sees, what he means, and how it applies. First of all, what is it that he sees? Well, you know, you don't have to be like a CSI analyst to see, figure out what it is that he is so taken with when he walks through the door. Over and over again, 12 times in my own English translation, John talks about the throne, The throne, the throne, everything that he sees is dominated by that one central vision. Now, like a good Jewish person, he's very careful not to describe with any specificity the one who sits on the throne. A Jewish person would have taken the second commandment, the one about not having graven images, very seriously. And so they avoided these kinds of direct descriptions of the deity. But he does say what it's like to look at him. And what he says is, is it's like staring into the midst of precious jewels. Uh, when I first started saying this passage, it sort of brought me back to what I think is a great moment in the life of any young man, and that is when he goes, without really any sort of preparation or personal resources, to go shop for your fiancé's engagement ring, right? Don't act like your boyfriend, ladies, has any sense whatsoever of what he's doing when he walks into this room. But I, for one, was thrilled at the prospect because I always knew what happened when you went into a jeweler, and that is he would give you that cool little monocle that he sticks in his eye and starts to look at stuff, you know, back and forth. Having no idea what I was supposed to look at, but I just wanted the thing. So you can imagine how excited I was when the jeweler sort of sat down and he laid out the little little black velvet carpet out on the desk there, and he brought out four or five little, little, (laughs) the little stones, sorry, sorry, Jen, she's in the back. Um, the little ones, campus ministry, not quite the get rich quick scheme that we thought it would be, had the small ones. And, um, he took these little tweezers and he stuck it on either side. And then at last he gave me the little monocle, stuck it in my eye, right? And I was ready for it. And he said, look, when you turn the thing in the light, you'll actually know the minute when you'll see it for what people talk about. He said, you'll trust me. You'll know it when you see it. And so I thought, okay, I'll give it a try picked up the sort of pitchfork thing there, stuck it in my eye and started looking at this thing and sort of getting in the light. And at first there was nothing really a big deal because I was looking at the cut and sort of the the little edges along the side and thinking, how in the world do you bake that on these tiny little things? But then all of a sudden it caught the light in just so. It didn't take but a couple seconds. And it looked, y'all, as if the dadgum stone burst into flame, that a rainbow came spewing out of this tiny little rock in a way which I had never seen before. And the funny thing was, is I found myself like lingering over the rock a little too long, you know, to where you kind of get a little caught up in it. Y'all, one of the strangest things, though, that I can say, and it still actually happens, and she's here to testify to it, is there's times in which when, she, when my wife polishes that ring with the little solution that the jeweler gave her to clean it with, there's times in which I'll look over in the passenger side seat And see, you're still kind of staring at it. Look, y'all, there are some things in life that are so captivating in and of themselves that the looking at it is its own reward. In other words, it's not what the thing can do for you. It's the mere looking at the thing that captures your imagination. And you just want to stare at it. And somehow time seems to get lost. John says that on the other side of reality, that is what he saw for coming from the throne. The next thing he sees is a big rainbow. It's a different kind of rainbow because this one's mostly green. That's actually an image that we've seen before. Uh, the, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, of all places, actually saw the exact same rainbow. I take it like most the commentators do. That John, that John is seeing an image that describes the God of all creation. After all, that's what all the praises are about as the chapter goes on. The next thing he sees is 24 thrones that surround the throne. Now, what's the number 24? Remember our discussion about numbers last night. I take those 24 to be sort of an image of the 12 tribes of Israel representing the people of God from the Old Testament, and the 12 apostles representing the sort of founding of a new Israel in the New Testament. The combination of two make 24. In other words, what John is saying is I saw in sort of figurative form the collection of all of God's people from before Christ and after Christ gathered before the throne in praise to Him. And then finally what he sees is a bunch of creatures, four living creatures flying around of various strange descriptions. Study this chapter and this Book of Revelation, as much as any other book I study while I was doing RUF, and I can I can say with great confidence to you that I have absolutely no idea what these four creatures stand for. And nor am I necessarily worried about it. Because the emphasis in the passage is not so much on what they are as much as what they do. The four living creatures, as they gather around God, spend all of their time shouting and singing and crying out. Praise to God. Hold that thought. Look, what is John trying to get across to us? I think the meaning, the sort of fundamental vision that he's seeing of all these layers of people are trying to say that there is someone on the other side of reality of cosmic importance to you. Look, if you want to come and see me, there's nothing like especially complicated about that because I'm not important at all. I live in Oxford, Mississippi. You can drive your car to Oxford. You can find your way to 1701 Johnson Avenue. And you can park there and knock on the door. And if it's a day that I'm in town, you can likely just come right on in, have a seat in my office, and have a chat. But imagine that you wanted to do that exact same thing to the President of the United States. That you want to go. You're not allowed to simply drive up to the White House knock on the door and say, I'd like to talk to President Obama, thank you very much. Why? He's too important. In order to get to him, you have to go through through secretaries and through mediaries and senators and congressmen and representatives. You can't just go in. The greatness of the figure can be described by the many layers through which you must go to get at him. My friends, the concentric circles surrounding the throne are trying to say, at least John, I think, is trying to say, is that here is one just on the other side of the door with whom you cannot trifle, and he is one for whom you must pay attention. He cannot and will not, and I'm going to argue in just a minute, is not ignored ever, even by those who claim to have nothing to do with him. So what does all this mean? That's what John sees. My second point is, what does this mean? Let me see if I can take a stab at this. Look, on the surface, even if you find yourself, and I want to keep addressing you this week if I can, even if you find yourself skeptical of Christianity and on its outside, you have to look and acknowledge that this is a message, honestly, that you could probably take or leave. That is, so what if there's a God on the other side of reality? You may even be imaginative enough to acknowledge that there might be a world out there like that. But you can look and say, who cares? What does that have to do with me? And bear with me, because this is kind of the hinge. This is the hinge of the sermon right here. Remember, John is not describing a heaven, a world where God dwells, that is far, far away, like some of the fairy tales told us. Rather, heaven is simply God's space among us, it is the the space where He dwells that, under normal circumstances, According to the, with our design, we would be able to see and understand easily. The heavens declare the glory of God, and nature shows His handiwork. Romans 1 says that what may be known of him is plain to us. But what that means then, is that that world is always going to be exerting its influence on this world. Just because we refuse to acknowledge its existence doesn't mean that we aren't constantly getting echoes bulletins, as it were, that shape for us, this is huge, that shape for us the very fabric of our sense of reality. Your emotional, your psychological, and your spiritual DNA is formed by echoes from that world. And so what are they doing in that world? They are worshiping. And so what does that mean for me? It means, therefore, and I'm borrowing from a pastor up in New York City, Tim Keller, When he said this, that therefore, worship is the controlling mechanism of your character. That's a fantastic way to say it. Worship, because that's what's going on in that world, and because that world is pressing in on ours, shapes the fabric of what it means for you to be human. And what essentially describes what a human is, is a human is a worshiper. It is who you are. And look, I realize at this point, (laughs) I've got to do a whole bunch of heavy-duty illustration to unclog our minds of what your expectations are about that. Most of you think that what we did here in the first 30 minutes before I came up is worship. That actually was not worship. These people up here tonight were facilitators of worship, but it was not the activity. When I was a little kid, it's strange at the age of uh, 44, the kinds of things that your mind holds on to when you were a kid. I remember having a conversation with my father, godly, dear Christian man that he is, about uh, heaven, eternity. And I remember sort of grappling with this idea of that being sort of a long time. I remember asking my father, I was like, Dad, what are we going to, like, what are we going to do in heaven, right? Forever's a long time. Like, what's the primary activity? And, you know, I'm sure my father would be gratified to know that I can now, after my vast amount of theological learning, can sort of uh, say that I think he answered properly, (laughs) <laughs> when he said to me, why less I think that we will spend an eternity praising God. And I remember, just as like it was yesterday, what I was thinking on the inside. And I should have said it, because I remember thinking to myself, wow, worship forever. Anything else? You know, the prospect of like an eternity of worship didn't quite grab me. It, it reminds me of the long-lost cartoon the far side, right, um, for which we get applause and which is fantastic. Um, favorite little far side panel, um, where the guy who's just arrived in heaven is sort of sitting there on his cloud, right, uh, and he's got his wings that he just got, and he's got a harp with him, and the little thought bubble above his head reads, "You know, I wish I'd brought a magazine." It was a little funnier than that I thought than the response I got, but that's okay. There'll be other opportunities as the sermon goes on. Um, the prospect of worship, why does that strike us so dull? The answer is it's because we think that it is simply limited to that activity. Look, let me see if I can de- de- um, define it this way. Worship is nothing more than what happens to you when you find something that you value. That's my summary statement for tonight. Worship is what happens inside of you when you find something that you value. Let's take, for instance, Uh, the sports fanatic. This will be the Kevin Teasley homage illustration of the night. A sports fanatic. Think about what a sports fanatic goes through, right? Um, You know, the football fan studies all week the object of his affection. He pours over newspapers, over magazines, over his fantasy team. He reads about it. He studies about it. He even witnesses about it to his friends, finding ways to bend the conversation around to, did you see that game? And not only that, but he'll actually invest all kinds of his personal, hard-earned resources just to come into the presence of his object of worship. And what happens when he gets there, right? His countenance changes, suddenly he begins to shout and to pra- His face is aglow <laughs> as he shouts praises down to the object of his highest affection. What's happening? He's worshiping. My friends, you will never understand how the Bible understands how you work until you grasp this point. <laughs> because worship so defined means that all of you are doing this all the time. Even if you find yourself very ah ah-religious this week, I mean, even if you find yourself here on the outside of anything religious, much less Christianity, if you're a skeptic, in this definition, this is always what's going on with you. To Ask yourself these questions as sort of a self-inventory. To what does your mind drift when it has nothing else to think about? Or how about this? With what will you console yourself in your thoughts when life disappoints you? Because, my friend, whatever that is, regardless of what religion you profess with your lips, is your God. It is the object of your worship. And do you realize, therefore, that it could be anything? It could be a job, it could be a career. It could be the preparation that you pour over with what anyone would describe with a sense of fanaticism over your studies so that you can gain that career. It could be money. It could be the sense of having a a financial base that creates for me a security. It could be a relationship. How many relationships have all of us seen that have been crushed under the weight of the other person's hope that that relationship would be the thing that made them happy. Not being able to bear the weight of that kind of idolatry. Gentlemen, have you noticed how much you go to sexuality itself for consolation? To sort of soothe, as it were, the sense of mundaneness of life? Or maybe even the disappointments and insecurities of life with a sexual fantasy? Those things are feeding something else. It's not hormones. It's feeding an energy inside me that has clung to something and said, this, this is where joy comes from. Yes, it can even happen with a potential relationship in the hope that one day there will be a husband or a wife who will finally look at me and say, yes, I'll be with you till death us do part. And as it were, it can also happen with even children. I dare say there could be a lot of testimonies in the room of people who would stand up and say what it was like to grow up in a home where you had a family or a parent who idolized you and worshipped you so much so that they imported their dreams on you. It could probably give testimony to the kind of destructiveness that happens. The Bible is assuming that at any given moment, the sum total of your life is to be measured by whatever you have put your life's hopes in. And it's not a mystery as to what that worship is, because it will always be defined most basically by, number one, your calendar, and number two, by your checkbook. Because my time and my treasure will always follow those things, my idolatries. There was an old writer by the name of Henry Skugel, who once said this. He said, the worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its highest affection. Did you catch that? Your worth, your excellency, if there is anything there, is measured by whatever it is you have looked at and said, this is what makes me be. And John says the reason why that happens is, is that just on the other side of the door, there's a throne. And around that throne, there's always worship going on. But on this side of the door, those desires are warped and they're broken. And so instead of worshiping the one true God, we have turned to idols and we have set them up and said, these will make me who I am. That I think secondly is what John means. Thirdly and finally, how does it apply? We've seen what John sees. We see what I think it means. Thirdly, how does it apply? It applies in two ways, I think. The first is to say this, The means by which, therefore, that God is going to ultimately bring about transformation in us. This is absolutely foundational. The means by which God is going to bring change into your life is by effecting what you worship. It happens there first, or it happens poorly, if not at all. Look, in other words, worship is the mechanism of glorification at the central teaching of what we mean by glorification is that there is a destiny in store for every person who follows the Lamb. More on that tomorrow night. There's a destiny that will finally be consumed by a vision that is so overwhelming and so glorious and so soul-crushingly beautiful that it will last for an eternity, and that the hymn writer would say that eternity would be too short to utter all of his praise. That changes you. And the funny thing is, is you already know this. Speaking of Tim Keller, he had this great illustration to follow up that went something like this. Ladies, imagine for a moment that you have a piece of jewelry that was uh, that you got from, I don't know, a, a distant aunt or something. A lot of jewelry illustrations tonight. I'm not sure why that's the case. Bear with me. But you have this little piece of jewelry, and I think it's kind of fairly interesting. One particular Sunday, you wear it to church, and somebody approaches you and says, you know, that's a pretty piece. You, uh, you ought to get that appraised. And so curiously, that week, you wander by the jeweler's store to find out what it is. Again, it's back to the jewelers, right? And he pulls out the monocle, <laughs> the all-powerful monocle, to which the speaker seems to be strangely enthralled. <laughs> And you pull the piece out, and he looks at it, kind of stares at it, and you under the thing, and all of a sudden he pushes himself back from the desk and says, "Ah, oh, do you know what it is that you have here? Why? This is the long-lost something or other, right? This thing is, is absolutely priceless. I mean, there's no price tag could be put on this. Think about, ladies, the changes that occur in you almost instantaneously. First of all, notice how you were changed emotionally. You know, before you thought it was kind of pretty, now you stare at it. You look at it and you realize this thing has a new power over you. It moves you on the inside. And secondly, you're changed socially. You know, before you used to be kind of insecure about your life, you know, terrified that you might not be able to pay your bills. Now you are set for the rest of life. You might even change your career and just travel the museums of the world with my wonderful piece here, right? Everything changes about your life. Thirdly, if you'll notice, you're also changed in your actions. You know, before you used to actually toss the thing around when you were done with it. You even lost it a couple times. Now you know where it is at all times. It's it's under lock and key, for heaven's sakes. You know where that thing is 24-7. Do you see what has happened? Life will always be transformed in accordance with the object of our worship. And John says that happens because it's going on just on the other side of reality. Look, and all my invitation for you is tonight is, does that even make you curious? <laughs> that there might be something that transfixing, that captivating, that enthralling. Look, the writers of the New Testament were not like they were because they were just religious like that. As a matter of fact, the Bible says they weren't. <laughs> no, no. What they saw was something that they were spellbound at, riveted at. And look, even if you don't feel that tonight, especially if you don't sense that tonight, are you curious? But secondly, I think there's another application we can make of here, and I'll finish with this, that finally helps us understand what I think is one of the most often misunderstood verses that I grew up with as a child. And it's in the verses right before chapter four, verse one. You ever heard this one in chapter three, verse 20? Take a look at it. It says there that, um, uh, uh, that that famous verse, it says, behold, I stand, Jesus says, at the door and knock. Finally, I think we can see what that means. I don't know about you, but, but I grew up with the image and the meaning of that verse being, you know, there stands, there stands gentle Jesus, meek and mild, sort of Lightly, impotently, rapping at the door of your heart, hoping, wringing his hands, that maybe, just maybe you'll open it up and let him in and let him be the Lord of your life. Don't you love the way we talk? Well, let him be the Lord of my life. Look, in these chapters, no one lets this man be the Lord of anything. He is the Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not. But all of a sudden, they come in and say, yeah, I stand at the door not. What does that mean? Look, y'all, I think the same door, follow this, that's being spoken of in chapter 3, verse 20, is the one that we just read about in chapter 4, verse 1. Did you make that connection? The door that's being looked at is not the door of your hearts. It's the door of reality itself. And Jesus looks and says, I stand at it and knock. Look, y'all, I think to be honest with you, this is to me one of the best descriptions of how your last year of school went. Look, y'all, is, there, is it possible, at least, is it possible that one of the reasons why you have experienced such a sense of, of displacement this last year is because reality itself is knocking on the door, that it's pressing its way in on you, that now maybe we understand what happened when the Apostle Paul, At that time, Saul, who is walking down a road of Damascus and is suddenly knocked down by the glorious vision of Jesus. And he looks at him and says, why are you persecuting me? Don't you understand that if you go after those people, it's the same as going after me, like we talked about last night. But then he looks and says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what in the world is a goad? Well, it was a shepherd's stick that had a sharp point at the end that he would use to give little stabs to the sheep in order to wake them up, to get them in line, to sort of show them what really is real, that they needed to trust the shepherd. And so Jesus is looking at Saul, who is raging against religion, and he says, it is hard for you to kick against reality. The only person whose life you are splintering is your own. Because I have set the direction for the universe. I am the Lord of creation, I am the one who commands the praise of all of the hosts of heaven. To go against my will is to go in the end, ultimately, against what is best for you. Oh, wandering sheep, (laughs) it is hard for you to kick against the goads. But you know what? I'm not going to end with that because I'm going to end with the fact that when I was a kid, nobody ever finished that verse, and I'm a little irritated by it. Because verse 20 looks and says that he's standing on the door that knocks, but nobody ever reads verse 21. Did you catch this one? Because it says there, to the one who conquers, look, now that we've studied the throne, brace yourself for this. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. <laughs> In other words, what John is saying is, and what Jesus is saying through John, is that for those who have placed their faith in me, you will not view eternity from the cheap seats, but rather I will draw you up into the throne itself, the place of that which is ultimately captivating. So you know what that means? It means that you will ultimately share in that captivation, that you will become the beauty that I think you know that you were supposed to be. Look, I'm a parent which means that I am obliged to go see every Pixar movie that's released. It's in a contract somewhere. Why, well, yes, I'll pay $45 to go see that. Of course I will. It's a Pixar movie. We're obliged. But I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I always am amazed at how often the themes of those movies happen like the one that happened in Tangled. And see, it moved all of you. Listen, you're cheering for it. Yes! And I hope you understand that the book of Revelation is explaining to you why you cheered. Why is it that the story of a young girl who languished under the authority of false parents, suddenly after she reads the signs in the night sky by letting her imagination wander at the sights that she sees, is suddenly brought into the kingdom to take her rightful place as royalty? Why did that stir you the way in which it did? And I'm saying, is it not possible that the reason why it did is because it was echoes from the real world? And that in the end, Christianity alone, Islam doesn't come close to this. Buddhism doesn't have any of this in it. It looks and says, not that you'll become gods, but that you will come and share in the eternal richness of fellowship, And joy and relationship that you know you were built for. Nothing comes close. It almost makes me think that I would believe in Christianity even if it wasn't true, because it's just that profound, it's just that beautiful. And it comes with an inherent invitation to come look into it. You can consider it as such. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you give us that vision? Because the truth of the matter is, is our hearts are dull. My heart is dull. Lord Jesus, we don't see those things. We are clogged with a thousand different allegiances that have captured our imagination. And because we have not seek, sought first you and your kingdom, all these other things have not been added to us. They've actually been taken away. We put all of our faith in that one who said they loved us. And then they left us. We didn't realize how much we put our faith in our parents before they got divorced. We didn't realize how much we thought that we were something special until we saw real competition at college. Father, our idols are falling down around us. Would you come and scoop us up? Because we've been getting these lights in the night sky that suggest that we are royalty and that you invite your people to come and share your throne, to not, to not come in as second-class citizens, but as children of the King. Would you draw us in in that way, through a conversation, through a small group, through a time alone in prayer? Change us if you would. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.